I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. So in the last episode, Sugi, you said that publicity, like God, works in mysterious ways. But what about the God part of this thing? <laughs> I, was, I was raised in a pretty seriously religious family. Um, and another thing that's mysterious to me is how little contemporary American writers include faith in their work. It seems like mostly a thing of the past. Really? I kind of think God and religion are all over American fiction and all over fiction generally, just God everywhere. I, 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 I mean, look, I, well, we'll talk more about this, but I, you know, I think back to somebody like Flannery O'Connor, but that was, that was a pretty long time ago. I think it's hard to find. Well, I'm going to kind of create a pretty huge carve out here because I think like Jewish American writers do address faith and they are a giant part of the American literary tradition. And this includes contemporary writers like Eileen Pollock, who we've had on our show, or Hadara Barnadov, my colleague who's been on the show, Emily Barton, Nathan Englander. I mean, that list is giant to me in a lot of ways compared to contemporary American writers who deal with Christianity. And, And since the two books we're looking at today are both about Christianity, we're going to end up Focusing, I think, mostly there. Those two authors are, uh, on the second half of the show, the Pulitzer Prize winning Paul Harding, author of Tinkers and Enon, uh, will be on to talk with us about his work and religion in American fiction. And on the first half of the show, we'll have R.O. Kwan, author of one of 2018's most electrifying debuts, The Incendiaries. The Incendiaries is an American Booksellers Association indie next number one great read. The novel is a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Award for Best First Book and is nominated for the Aspen Prize and American Library Association Carnegie Medal. Kwan's writing has appeared in The Guardian, Vice, BuzzFeed, Noon, The Cut, 
time and elsewhere. She has received awards and fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, Yaddo, McDowell, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, and the Suwannee Writers Conference. She was born in South Korea and has lived mostly in the United States. Aro, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on the success of this novel. Um, look, I'm, I'm interested to hear your take on this argument about religion and contemporary American fiction that Sugi and I are having, or maybe I'm just having with myself. Um, as I was saying to Sugi earlier, I was, I was raised in a sort of evangelical family. Um, and when I read stories like the one circulating right now about the MAGA supporter Catholic kids uh, mocking the Native Americans uh, in Washington, D.C., I think that's how most literary writers think of religious people as kind of, you know, extremists of a sort. And I guess I think of most of America, because we are having this argument with each other, I think, as religious in a way that I'm not. Um, but I don't think of religious people as extreme, particularly radical, probably because I grew up with a lot of people who went to church or synagogue weekly and didn't seem sort of isolated or radical about their faith. And I was raised Hindu, although pretty far from any kind of traditional temple. And now I would call myself an atheist. And you were Christian and intensely faithful for a long time, right? Yeah, so I grew up, um, I grew up deeply Christian. And for a, for a while, I was so Christian that I thought that I was going to become a missionary or a pastor. Um, that was pretty much my goal in life. And then, and then when I was 17, I lost the faith. Um, and I could no longer believe in God. And I found that loss to be cataclysmic. Um, and so I wanted to write a book. I think that was one of the, one of the main reasons I wanted to write this book, um, is I wanted to write a book that could bring to life both how painful it was to lose a faith, but also how wonderful it was to believe. Um, I, I wanted to give witness to the experience I had had of religion. I had of religion of, of God, which was in a lot of ways a joyful, ecstatic re- experience. Oh, really? See, that's interesting because I guess I think my students are trying to. Fig- I have many students who are in that same situation. They had had at some point a very intense identification with religion, and now they're trying to figure out how to write about it. I guess for me, the interesting thing was that I never felt that, so I don't really know, like the the second part where you said talking about giving witness to the good parts of it, that's that's harder for me to figure out how to do, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I do feel like it's, like, was were there specific difficulties to that for you? Were there specific difficulties to writing about it? The positivity of religious experience. Like, I think writing about anything in a positive way is, is harder than writing about something in a negative way, just in general, you know? Yeah. And religious experience is so, it's not fly fishing or, I don't know, you know, knitting. It doesn't have a physical product, right? Yeah. And so yeah. it's harder to, to transmit that kind of internal joy, I think. It's a hard thing to write about. Yeah, um, that was something I struggled with. Writing about faith in general, writing about God in general um, in fiction, I did find to be, for a long while, I found it hard to write about it in a way that could be interesting to even to people who had no experience of faith and possibly didn't care. Um, And I think over time, I found that the more I rooted the experience of faith in the body and in the physical world... um, the more I was able to write about it in ways that, that other people could 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 understand or or that could strike a chord with other people. So your book is built around built around three characters and their actions near near and around an inn of the campus of a fictional university called Edwards. 
and the the trio of characters um for those of our listeners who haven't picked up this novel yet and you have quite a treat in store for you korean american phoebe lynn who's a former piano prodigy um and you were also a very serious music student um for a while and then the second character um from whose point of view much of the story takes place, Bible college transfer Will Kendall, who's Phoebe's boyfriend. And How'd you like John that to be your moniker? Hey, it's Bible college transfer Whitney. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like I'm trying to efficiently set this up here, Whitney. Well, the next one's going to be even better. And now, listeners, you have a you have a sense of what it's like to write jacket copy. And um, and John Leal, the the leader of a cult which is called Jada. Am I saying that right? Um, um, more or less, um, Cheja, but yeah, Cheja. pretty much. Okay. Um, and Will and Phoebe have a romance and John disrupts their relationship because he's, he sort of is this like, um, you describe your own rupture with faith as a, as cataclysmic and he sort of seems to me to embody that. So let's hear. Sure. Um, okay. So I'll read just the first chapter at the start of the book. One, Will. They'd have gathered on a rooftop in Knoxhurst to watch the explosion. Platt Hall, I think, 11 floors up. I know his ego, and he'd have picked the tallest point he could. So often, I've imagined how they felt, waiting. With six minutes left, the slant light of dusk reddened the high old spires of the college, the level gables of its surrounding town. They poured festive wine into big-bellied glasses. Handshaking, they laughed. She would sit apart from this reveling group, cross-legged on the roof's west ledge. Three minutes to go. Two. One. The Phipps building fell. Smoke plumed the breath of God. Silence followed, then the group's shouts of triumph. Wine glasses clashed together, flashing martial light. He sang the first bars of a Cheja psalm. Others soon joined in. Carolyn bells chimed, distant birds blowing white, strewn like dandelion tufts, an outsized wish. It must have been then that John Leal came to her side. In his bare feet, he closed his arm around her shoulders. She flinched, looking up at him. I can imagine how he'd have tightened his hold telling her she'd done well, though before long, it would be time to act again, to do a little more. But this is where I start having trouble, Phoebe. Buildings fell. People died. You once told me I hadn't even tried to understand. So here I am, trying. Thank you so much, Aro. I love that opening section of the book. When Sugi and I were discussing this uh, episode, I put forward the theory that most contemporary American writers aren't sort of. I, this is just this is a, I, how I feel. You know, don't write a lot about religion, although a tremendous amount of the country is very religious. Um, in the same way that sort of maybe earlier American writers had written about religion. I was wondering what you think about that. Sugi disagrees with me, which arguments are interesting. Um, and how do you think about your book fitting into a tradition of of fiction taking on religious themes or disrupting a tradition? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I so what part of what I found to be so hard about losing my faith um, back when I was seventeen was it would I felt so desperately lonely, um, and it wasn't just that 
all my friends and family pretty much at that point were religious. So that was hard too. But I also couldn't find my experience of apostasy. I couldn't find it reflected in books. Um, and I was pretty used to, you know, as like a bookish introverted teenager, I was pretty used to not feeling terribly understood by the world um, around me. But but I was used to finding, finding companionship in books. Um, and so I, I think while I was writing this book, in some ways, I I really wanted to write a book for that 17-year-old girl who felt alone and to sort of, and to tell you that she was never that alone um, and that she isn't now. So that was at the time I couldn't really find books that grappled with the loss of God. But since then, I've, I've come across more such books. But you're right that there aren't that many, at least, um, at least from contemporary American writers. But I do love the way, for instance, I love the way Teju Cole writes about God. Um, okay. Uh, much more elliptically in Open City, but in his Blind Spot, which is fantastic. It's a book of photographs with text that accompanies the, his photographs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and he writes he writes beautifully about faith. Um, Marilyn Robinson's incredible, of course. Um, She's kind also, of the gold standard contemporary American writer who has really dealt with that. Yeah, she writes so beautifully about faith and about believing and in, and in ways that never feel inner fiction in ways that never feel reductive or simplistic. Um, and Sui, you had a story in Plowshares that I absolutely loved. Oh, um, thank you. K, K becomes K, right? Yeah. And that I thought, um, that I thought also had a lot to do with faith and in, in profound ways. Yeah, I guess, um, one of the, when Whitney brought this up, um, I mean, I wonder how much when we talk about religion in American fiction, we're thinking about Christianity And also, I think for me, I sort of see it in subtle ways. And I mean, certainly in Maryland, um, I think you um, had in in other places talked about Virginia Woolf. And then, of course, there's sort of Flannery O'Connor. And Mm -hmm. I think for me, it's a lot about space. And so the story that you're talking about, which is part of the novel that I'm working on, takes place partly in a temple and is also connected to um, kinds of political beliefs. And that was one of the things I most admired in the incendiaries, the way that, um, and Laura Miller wrote about this as well in the New Yorker, like the ways that you were talking about um, political belief and religious belief and how those things align and don't align and make way for each other. Um, But to me, it seems like that's so much a part of our, of our discourse all the time that, um, I guess I guess I don't agree with Whitney, mm-hmm. um, but it's a it's like it's definitely interesting ground to think about because for me like so much of right like I'm reading in English which is like not the language of the people that I'm writing about and so I don't know like as I was reading your book every sentence has um, it's really deeply infused with um, the language of faith and the Bible and Christianity and arguments about those things. And I wondered if that was something that progressed um, from, say, earlier drafts onwards, or was that something, was that the voice of the book originally? Uh, let's see. I love that. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, that's that's really wonderful to hear. I So when the book started, um, I spent the first two years going down what turned out to be a sort of um, a dead end. I For the first two years, the book was told entirely from um, Phoebe's point of view, the woman who falls into the mm-hmm. cult. And uh, she just sort of wandered around by herself meditating on the nature of an absent God. Um, and that, it turned out, was, was not 
the book I wanted to write, at least not for our first book. Um, and I, I mean, I really, or at least not for this book. And I really love wandering around meditative books. Um, I love Tasia Cole, as I said, and I also love like Sabald. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I found that once I started externalizing some of my novels, obsessions, and my own obsessions with faith um, and with the loss of faith, the book started coming a lot more to life. And so that was when that was when the the cult aspect started coming into the book um, and the and the explosions. <laughs> right. <laughs> I guess what I was thinking about, you know, and, and I have, uh, you know, thanks to doing this show with Sugi um, it, uh, and from her work, you know, and from all the other writers we've had on, like S.J. Sindhu, who we've had on the show, uh, or doing a show about Buddhist extremism in Sri Lanka, um, is... You know, we thinking about. I think America is going to think about religion in many. In, there's going to be many different kinds of religion that are important in America, not just Christianity and Judaism. Um, you know, but I, I do still think that um, you know people associate now today talking about that mixture of politics and religion associate a, a particularly Christian religion with extremism and fundamentalism and the far right. And I don't know if it's possible to pull those things apart. Like, for instance, that that association did not exist if you're looking at Dostoevsky's work, right? He didn't associate Christianity with the far-right extremist uh, kind of ideology that we would associate it like Jerry Falwell Jr. with today. Does that make sense? And that's what I find is, is like seems difficult. Like, how do you make even a positive religious character, you know, without without dealing with this sort of thing that's grown onto Christian religion in America, you know, and that we find mm. so forward in our politics today? Hmm, I guess, well, the response I've had most often actually about um, extremism and, and Christianity from readers has been, people have been, people have expressed surprise, um, not in a bad way, but People have said, oh, I never really thought of Christianity as being, as potentially being extremist. Um, <laughs> and it seems many more readers have been used to thinking of, of Muslim extremists uh, um, than of Christian extremists. And so sort of like bringing this, bringing this to Christianity, it seems was, was startling to a lot of people. Um, oh, that is so surprising to me. I mean, I, I get it how that would happen, but that is certainly not how it works in my mind. What about you, Sugi? What is your association well, with extremism and Christianity? Well, I think, you know, I'm just reminded of um, Marilyn, who always talks about, you know, like our ability to very swiftly become ahistorical readers. Because, I mean, all you have to do is look at like the Crusades, right? I mean, um there's so many instances of Christian extremism. Maybe this makes me a particular kind of jaded, but I guess I don't think that any belonging to any particular group makes one exempt from the possibility of being radicalized or extreme. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I think often when it comes to writing about Sri Lanka, I get this kind of incredulity with which um, maybe I'm slightly impatient with this probably like that people are sort of like, but Buddhists can, there's a Buddhist extremist. And I'm sort of like, must I, must I explain this? And, you know, and, you know, there is, um, there's a Hindu right wing as well. And I think that like in any faith and also in any set of politics, you can find those people. And um, I think as someone who's often writing from like, at least from the the position of faith um, and often like, you know, race as well, because of, 
being a minority in those situations, um, I think I've I've always thought that they're that those stories are interesting. Uh, like, and so I think that was what was so appealing here was to try and you know understand how do people's beliefs lead them down paths that they might initially not have expected, you know, step by step. Mm-hmm. I feel like one of the complications, just to be totally upfront, of having a character who is sincerely Christian and fundamentalist in a book as an important character is how to get secular readers to not just be like, that is a nutcase, right? That's just, that's what, that's what I do as a secular reader, right? And what I noticed about one of the strategies that you use in your book, uh, R.O., is you talk about how you use will as a kind of entry point for a secular reader into the into the book. And you can see some of that in that opening passage that you read when he's asking, something like, Phoebe, I didn't really get all this stuff, right? Because he is somebody who had has lost his faith, and so therefore he's in a sort of like non-believer position, right? Is that is he a sort of entry figure in that way of dealing with that particular issue in this book? Um, As a strategy, narratively? That's a... I, I, I definitely see what you're saying, and I think that it... Well, let's see. Maybe I'll just go back to... So at the two-year mark, when I threw away everything I had, um, I found that staying... At that point, the book was told entirely from Phoebe's point of view, as I've said. Um, and I found that there was something about her point of view that felt really claustrophobic to me, um, because she goes through such ups and downs. I'm not, I'm not giving very much away at all. If I say that she loses a great deal, um, in the novel during the novel. And, and then she feels that she gains a great deal. And so her experience of the world is very, and then she maybe, she probably like blows up a building, you know, like her, her experience of the world runs to extremes. Um, and I found that having a narrator who's not so much at the center of the action in this case, will, um, just opened up a lot more space for me. It let the novel breathe. It let me hit a lot. It let me play with a lot more emotion, emotional registers mm-hmm. than were available just with Phoebe. Um, that said, I'm not sure that I thought of Will as any kind of an entry point. Um, because when I'm writing, I find it pretty much, I find it impossible to think about an audience. Um, I'm so deep in the sentences and in the, and in the language and just trying to get things right and trying to be truthful um, that I'm writing very much for myself and to satisfy myself. But of course, this also means that once I step, once I step away from that sort of deep immersion, immersion in the writing, this has political implications since I'm centering me, a Korean American woman with a complicated relationship with faith, which means of course that I'm not centering, for instance, um, like straight white male readers and, so I've had people ask me questions that that I think someone at the point just um, just straight up asked, "Do you think about white people when you're writing?" And yeah, that seems so weird because there's lots of white people in this book. I don't get that. <laughs> yeah, and I and I was just like, well, I mean, I, I I don't even remember what I said, but I was thinking, well, how often have you thought of Korean American readers while you're re- um, while you're writing? But it's not what I said in the moment. But there are there are choices I make, narrative choices I make. Like I don't. There's a key part when um, there like when Phoebe's mother first addresses Phoebe as Hedgin, which is her middle name, Korean her Korean name. I never explain. Oh, this is her middle name. It's her Korean name. It's what her mother calls her. Um, 
it was important to me that I not explain something that was going to be incredibly obvious to any Korean Americans I could think of, any Asian Americans I could think of. I mean, in some ways, wait, I think like what you're asking is kind of, right, you're presuming that the majority audience for literary fiction is secular. Yeah. Whereas I think that I have always presumed the opposite. Um, That's interesting. Right, because like, um, right, like I have always, I mean, I've always presumed that, um, and I think like probably in some deep, intensely subconscious level, that um, that people wanted explanations. And then sort of the older I got, the more I was able to consciously answer the question. But I think like my instinctive like as a kid response, right, is again from that minority position of, well, I have to presume that I have to or I can presume or I'm often faced with the reality that people don't understand um, what it is that I'm writing about. And then like, Aro, what you're saying is that, you know, sort of like making a conscious craft decision to not to not do that. Um, And that being something that's not only about faith, but also in this case about race and ethnicity and nation. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, Koreanness and being Korean American is very important to the book and to the characters. But I think you're right that race isn't sort of foregrounded. It's it's not people aren't grappling with race on like every page, <laughs> and um and and there are any for instance there's like no there are never any like racial slurs that anyone's that anyone's dealing with. Um, I wanted to write a book that could reflect a little more of how I feel moving through the world because I don't. I mean, I, sometimes I go like a whole day without remembering that 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 I'm Korean. You know, like I just I, I just feel like a person on this earth. Um, it's much harder for me to remember that I'm to forget that I'm a woman, especially if I go outside of my apartment. But I do sometimes forget that that I'm Korean American. That I do sometimes forget that people look at me and see and and might see an other in a way that um, that could be hurtful. And I think I wanted the book to reflect that. The reason, the reason I'm talking about this secular audience thing comes back, I realized, to a lecture that McPherson used to give at Iowa, and he would talk about um, the Scopes trial. And he had this theory that the Scopes trial um, uh, was the moment when America moved from being a, a religious nation to a secular nation. Because the Scopes trial people were, the, the people who were sort of pro- like Darwin is men are not people are not descended from apes, you know, um, were mocked so successfully, particularly by oh my God, who's the Baltimore uh, writer uh, by H. L. Mencken, that writing after that grappled with trying to find the transcendent somewhere other than religion. Mm-hmm. That was his theory, and maybe we've changed and that's worn off, you know. And, People That's don't remember the Scopes trial, but that was the tradition that I was brought up in. Yeah. I wonder if, I feel as though it's definitely true that most of the writers I know um, have very little to no experience with with faith, especially of like the sort of all-encompassing faith um, that, that plays a big role in, in the incendiaries. Um, but I'm not sure that a majority of the readers I know are in this camp. Um, yeah, I think you're right. It, I think you're right. I think that's why there is an audience for it, but that like the 
quote unquote literary world, meaning the editors and people like me don't have that uh, familiarity. And so that's why I'm trying to figure out how I get to try to, I feel like your book's important because it navigates that in a way that I think is really instructive for my students who are trying to write about it. I'm like, look, there is an audience and editors, I think, I think my students are worried about writing two secular editors who are going to think they're nuts. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm. What was your response when you're dealing with the publishing industry for writing about this topic? Was there any pushback there or people supportive? Um, that's a great question. Let's see. I mean, my, my agent, um, Ellen Levine, she's wonderful. Um, she's also, I actually, I, I sought her out in part because I love um, Marilyn Robinson and Paul Harding and Michael Andachi, and she, she represents all of them. Um, so I think I had a sense that she might be particularly open to and experienced with um, being an agent for, for books that grapple with religion and with faith. That's a really um, good idea. I like that. She's also the agent um, for Lala Khadivi, um, who also, of course, um, has written her, – her writing also has uh, – is, is very interested in faith um, and in extremism. So – that that I, I was very fortunate in that respect that that Ellen did want to did want to work with me and did, wanted to work with my book. Um, and my editor Laura Laura at Purchasepi at Riverhead, um, she's wonderful, and she she also she never really I don't think I don't think we had a lot of um, I don't think we had that many discussions about about the faith aspect of the book. The question she had it had a lot more to do with character and with um, there was a lot of there was a lot of line editing, but she never really questioned. I think, as far as I can remember, the faith aspects of the book. And were you worried about it internally, or was that not an issue for you? Uh, I think I was. I was truly worried that just like no one would care. Um, right. And it and it is true that like in my MFA program, which I loved. Um, in a lot of ways, my MFA program was fantastic, and I feel very lucky in that respect. Um. There, most of the people in my in my workshops um, were 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 pretty uninterested in. I mean, on the face of it, were pretty uninterested in faith. Um, and it just, I was I was so obsessed with. It was so important to me that I convey how hard it was to lose God. How um, how I, and how hard it still is in so many ways. I think it's a loss I'm still contending with every day, and I'm think it's possible I'm never going to stop contending with it. Um, but then it was helpful to have that point of view in my head, I think, because then I was, because then I, I didn't automatically assume that people would be interested in what I was saying. Um, but again, it's really hard to separate that from, from what it feels like to write about Korean Americans, from what it feels like to write about, um, like, I, I never... And I think I never go into it with an assumption that anyone will care about what I have to say. <laughs> That's, that is life, isn't it? Damn it. No one's going to care about this. But I'm doing it anyway. I mean, one of the things that I found really striking about the language of the book was the way that, um, you know, as a kid, I especially on road trips would tote books everywhere. And my parents were always trying to get me to carry fewer books. And so if we, you know, went on a road trip and stayed in a hotel, they would be like, leave your pile of books in the car. And what I would do sort of very, um, this was my version of defiance was that I would go <laughs> into the hotel and, and pull out the Gideon 
and read it. Mm. So I read the entire Bible in hotels as a child. Oh my God. That is the saddest story I've ever heard you tell, Sugi. That's so interesting. Well, my parents were, I mean, they were great about, like, you know, taking me to the library a lot, but they were sort of like, must you carry 50 books on every road trip? (laughs) And the answer was yes, I I needed to. But then they were like, could you not take them in and out of every hotel? And so, like, I did. So I read the Bible a lot and, like, became very (laughs) fond of it. But as like, but it was a totally, right, like, faithless Um, Like it was a purely like I read it like I was reading a novel. And like as I was reading your book, I was sort of struck by, you know, the intense ways in which like the language of belief and of faith is in every sentence in the syntax um, in the I mean, the very fingerprints of your language. And yet it's also right. Like I'm not Christian. And but I, the book felt like very accessible to me as a reader and that the the characters um were like the intensity of their belief did remind me of a lot of the books that I love reading, which are about often about political belief and about loss of belief in certain kinds of politics. Like I was thinking about Dana Spiota's novel, Eat the Document. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the ways in which people's relationships to movements change. Um, So I was really like invited to reinterrogate my notions of how faith and politics are, are related to each other. Um, but yes, that's my that's my story of reading the Bible. I'm sure both of yours are very different. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, and I do. I I mean, I, I of course, I grew up reading the Bible a lot. Um, but while I was reading this book, too, I was I just kept rereading a lot. I was reading the Bible pretty much nonstop. I was reading a lot of religious thinkers, too. Um, and it 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 occurred to me sort of late in the novel writing process that that I was spending almost as much time thinking about God and reflecting reflecting on the nature of God um, ah. and his absence as I would have if I'd stayed religious yeah. um, and so in some ways I wonder if this was my this was and is and continue it continues to be sort of my last way of being with this 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 deity who I, who I loved a lot who I love so much um, and who I still miss a lot <laughs> so who are the religious thinkers um, so I love, Simone Veil is one of my very favorites. Um, I, I've read almost every, I think I've read like every book of hers I could find. I just finished, um, Christian Wyman's He Held Radical Light and he, ref- and the book has a lot to do with poetry, but also to do with God. That was really beautiful. Um, Marilyn Robinson is amazing, of course, as we said. Um, I loved Lala's book too, Lala Khadivi's, um, Muslim Hamid too. Um, mm. Oh yeah. That's a good idea. Yeah, and in really interesting ways too. Um, but I was reading—I mean, I was reading like like Kierkegaard and and just yeah, books like that. <laughs> I, this is why I just think writing writing is a religion that is a secular religion. It has its saints and its you know ways of studying, and it's a it's a religion of the book, just in the way that Christianity is a religion of the book, and most religions are religions of a book. Mm. Talmudic it's, studies is very, you know, it's just close reading. Yeah, I, I think, I, I think I agree in that when I'm deep in the writing, um, when I'm having a good writing hour or day, and if I can just be in the language and be in the sentences, um, then I, then I totally forget myself. You know, I forget all sense of, I, I forget all ego. I forget to worry about what I'm doing with my life. Um, I don't like have an appetite. Like I just, I just like lose all sense of, of the self. And that comes as close, that comes closer to 
to than anything I've ever otherwise experienced to the experience to what it was like to be deeply faithful. Um, in because when I believed a lot of the ecstasy did come from those moments of forgetting the self. Um, that said, it's it's not quite the same in that when when I was religious, I believed I it was possible to believe in joy that wouldn't have an end, um, which is no longer accessible to me. Mm-hmm. Well, Aro, it's such a treat to have you on the show with us. Um, we really appreciate you joining us. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was this was great. Thanks so much for being here. This week, our episode is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. So we wanted to take a little bit of time to tell you about The Great Courses Plus. Uh, reading Oz our listeners know opens us up to a world of new people, places, and ideas to explore. And with The Great Courses Plus, you have access to all of that and a lot more. It's an online streaming service, and it has just a huge variety of different topics. You can watch or listen wherever you are, wherever you want. It's totally portable, which I find to be hugely useful. And it has courses on a ton of different topics, you know, Shakespeare, medieval Europe, mysteries of human behavior, photography. What are mysteries of human behavior, Suki? I think there's psychology. Is, it, is, it, is um, there an electron why I wanted to interrupt you there? That's a mystery of human behavior. <laughs> the mysteries of Whitney's behavior, everyone. <laughs> a weekly question. No, can I just um, say about, I want to talk about this mobile thing. Do you, know what, do you know what happened to me this week? What happened to you this week? Well, first of all, the Chiefs lost, so I can't listen to sports talk radio. And <laughs> BuzzFeed blew this story about the president, so I can't listen to any podcast. Both things frustrate the hell out of me. And so what are you doing? Are you I doing the Great, Courses, the Great Plus? Courses Plus? I mean, I put it on my phone. I go for a two-hour jog every day, and I was listening to lectures. I was listening to a great lecture just today about Philip K. Dick um, and Minority Report as part of their um, great utopian and dystopian works of literature series of lectures. So there's a, a ton of lectures in there, you know, and and it's right on your phone. I mean, you can watch these on, on video on your computer if you want, but I just switched to audio, put it on my phone, open up the app, and I can listen to any one of those um, lectures, and it's fantastic. So we know that the Great Courses Plus is uh, a valuable option for you too, and we've arranged a special limited time offer for our listeners, which is a whole month of the Great Courses Plus for free. Way better and negotiation the- strategy on our end than President Trump and the government <laughs> shutdown. We actually got you something. Watch this course. Um, So we are particularly highlighting the great utopian and dystopian works of literature, the one that Witt mentioned. There's also a ton of other options there. To get the special offer of one month free, you have to sign up through our URL, which is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lithub. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lithub. All right, so just remember, you can listen to these just like a podcast on your phone, which is what I've been doing all week. It is awesome. If you want to start, and you can do this for free, so start a free month trial now. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lithub. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash lithub. If you do it while running for two hours every day like Whitney, please send us an email at our, at our podcast email and tell me because just... You guys, he's so disciplined. I we want to see if we'll put it on Instagram. <laughs>
And now we're excited to welcome Paul Harding. Paul is the author of the novel Tinkers, which won the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and the 2013 novel Enon. He has received a Guggenheim Fellowship for Writers and was a fiction fellow at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, Massachusetts. He has taught at the Iowa Writers Workshop, Harvard, and Grinnell College, and has a new gig he was just telling us about. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to talk with you guys. So, Paul, Witt and I have just been discussing the way contemporary writers, mostly American but not all, deal with religion and the way that past American writers dealt with the subject as well. And so in Tinkers, a hermit named Gilbert presents one of the main characters, Howard Crosby, with a copy of The Scarlet Letter inscribed by Hawthorne. Is that your way of drawing a connection between America's religious and literary past and current day? I, I, I think it ended up being that. It was sort of a, a happy accident. It was not necessarily intended, but it, it proved to be, you know, it, it proved to be uh, consistent with itself, as my old teacher, Marilyn Robinson, used to say. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that there is, I mean, I thought of it as a, as, as there being a kind of continuum, you know, I'm very, very identified with Hawthorne and all those transcendentalists. And um, so it was a happy accident, because it just so happens that Gilbert the Hermit in Tinker's um, lives in a part of Maine that actually is a land grant that um, Bowdoin College owns, and um, Hawthorne uh, went went to Bowdoin. So that that's how it came up initially, and that oh. then it started to you know, a, a, a acquire more layers of meaning. I have lots of good feelings about Maine. I have a very good poet friend who lives in and, and is a park ranger in Acadia National Park. Ah, oh, brilliant! Yeah, and uh, Christian Barter. Hey, Christian. Um, so, uh, with Aro, we were mostly talking about the, the more fundamentalist extremist version of Christianity that I would, that I associate with contemporary American Christianity. There's the, the Falwell version, the 700 Club version. But in an interview I was listening to, uh, with you from way back in 2009, uh, Christopher Lydon called you a self-taught modern New England transcendentalist. Um, and you were just talking about your love for the transcendentalists. Is that true of you? And, and second, could you talk about what transcendentalism is to you. Right. Yeah. Well, I, it's that, that line has, has, uh, quite a life. <laughs> it um, made it into uh, Wikipedia, right? I'm not going to quote it from Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'll go I, find where this came from. No, that's funny. That's funny. And Wikipedia for a long time had me down as one of, um, Tanya Harding's cousins, which is not true, but boy, it oh, great. Oh, that, was the, that was the entry um, that I wrote in. I'm sorry. I was just um, goofing around that day. <laughs> but the um, but, you know, that's one of those kind of funny prophetic lines, which is it was true before I knew it was true, sort of that. Um, I mean, the, the 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 transcendentalists really were the first writers and thinkers, poets, you know, so philosophers and you know, so philosophically, intellectually and aesthetically with who who I read first first read and and they really um uh, sparked um, like uh, that that amazing moment of recognition. Like I, I I didn't when I started reading what they you know their their art and their philosophy. It wasn't like I was learning anything. It was like I was being reminded of things that I had al always mm. known. You know, um, transcendentalism resonates with me because of its focus on uh, individual experience. Um, not sort of self-help or individualism, like it's all me attending to my own needs and my well-being, but just uh, the examined life and um, placing value, the ultimate 
value on um, on 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 uh, on experience, being mindful and just being paying attention to individual experience and consulting your own soul and your own intellect and evolving just your awareness as a person. My father was very was a fundamentalist, is a fundamentalist Christian, and um, so it was interesting. Like I read the same books in college. And what I took from them was something totally different. Like your take on it is, is so much more internal. Like I looked at the at like, oh, what I think I'll do is go to Alaska and find places where there's less people. You know, <laughs> right? Right. For people, it'd be much easier. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I no, I mean, I think that the you know the transcendentalists were some of the most uh, socially active and involved people in American history, and when you look into uh, you know that that group of you know Emerson and Fuller and just you know it keeps keep widening the radius, and um, you very quickly get into things like women's suffrage and abolition. Most you know abolition, uh, the abolitionists were very. Um, closely tied with transcendentalism. Um, and it's actually very, you know, uh, transcendentalism to me seems like to, to be very fundamentally democratic, you know, because if, if the, if the individual conscience uh, is uh, of the greatest value, then you are obligated to enable and help every person across whom you come to, um, uh, to, to be free to examine their own experience without coercion or oppression. That's really interesting. I was, um, when the earlier part of the conversation, I was telling Aro and with, you know, I grew up, um, Hindu, but, you know, in the United States, pretty far from, you know, the, the traditional physical structure of temples, et cetera, et cetera. And right. I think like a lot of the way in which, I mean, I think like anyone in a minority kind of religious and, and, racial position in the United States, I was sort of imbibing Christianity all the time in the ways that it was sort of around me, but also specifically in literature. And I think, you know, I must have come to transcendentalism almost, um, of course, without realizing it, probably by reading like Little Women and Little Men and, Absolutely. you know, oh, yeah. Joe's, Joe's Boys. When there's that, you know, her ideal, the school of little boys, um, <laughs> you know, and then I'd sort of going and reading, I think I read a Louisa May Alcott biography when I was, when I was a kid and sort of, so it was kind of absorbing it in this unconscious way and then studying it in a um, more systematic way came to appreciate the ways in which I, I got that actually through literature. And right. so I think about it, right, of course, transcendentalism is this positive branch of American thought and writing about religion and, and the Scarlet Letter is a critique of the more right. rigid and fundamentalist or at the time puritanical view of religious experience. But Emerson was a minister's kid and, and became yeah. a minister also. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really interested to think about, um, you know, all the transcendentalists, you know, Thoreau, Hawthorne, Margaret Fuller, and the Alcotts grew up in a deeply Christian society. Right. So, you know, if you were talking to little kids who you with their copy of Little Men, um, like how would you describe the connection between Christianity and transcendentalism? Oh, I, th I mean, transcendentalism just, I mean, you, it's, a, it's a direct it, it directly uh, arose from that that uh, specifically kind of congregational reformed Protestant um, uh, a tradition in which uh, Emerson very prominently was was um, was immersed. Um, I, I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that's fascinating about Emerson as a minister is that 
uh, it's out of print now, but there's a, you know, there are four, there's a four volume set of his sermons. People sort of like people mention Emerson was a minister in order to get past the facts (laughs) in in order to ignore it. And he has, you know, you know, close to 200 sermons, each of which he preached upwards of 12 times. And if you go back to these sermons, you have, you know, the, the genesis of the American scholar and the divinity school address and all these things. Um, And people are, you know, because religion is, yeah, this, this, you know, part of this kind of like, you know, it's this antithetical side of this false dilemma between science and religion these days. So people are sort of scared away from thinking seriously about religion because they're afraid it'll make them stupid or something like that. But the the tradition that Emerson comes out of, I mean, he, in leaving the ministry to continue his, the the writing that he did, you know, and for which we all know him, is is consistent with the tradition. You know, Protestants put the protest in Protestant. You know, they, <laughs> there's a long tradition of um, uh, of Protestants feel for religious reasons leaving the institution of the church because it has become too calcified or whatever, and has 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 become too too has fallen. Uh, to uh, groupthink or whatever, you know, this kind of more fundamentalist kind of groupthink. Um, and and it, in doing that, um, uh, uh, it, it, it reduces that experience of uh, you know, the individual conscience examining itself. Um, and so Emerson, I would argue, left the church in order to pursue religion and God more deeply, which you could argue Jesus did. You know, Jesus was Jewish, and he said, well, it's getting a little uptight here, so I'm going to go, you know. Uh, you know so, that, so this idea of, uh, you know, pro- Protestants protesting yeah. is a very anti-institutional, very demo- de- democratic it's interesting because you know the 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 current uh, form of the church that we associate with the far right in America, which is the most dominant form of Christianity right now. It seems to make the most people follow this, is in its written its sort of like inflexibility, so similar to the kind of Catholic dogma that Protestants were originally rebelling against. It seems like to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's like the, it's like it's organized religion continually like calcifies itself and you know yeah i mean i think that's you know that's always like i think that's every human institution is vulnerable to that you know um but i mean that's another part of the you know this long tradition of protestant thought that is uh uh you know the uh, the protestant theologian karl bart and um his former student dietrich bonhoeffer you know had this idea of religionless christianity you know they freely recognize that religion is a human artifact it is a human um construction and as such is as vulnerable to fundamentalism calcification all that as as any other form of human thinking is which means you know just to say it's utterly vulnerable Uh, (laughs) you know the whole idea of just every single day you have to you do have to kind of reinvent your relationship with your selfhood and your uh, you know your your experience of your selfhood and and, you know they put value on that because religiously speak theologically speaking yourself is god-given so there's nothing more important and not, you know it's a sort of it's an act of obedience to pay attention to your own experience 
This is so interesting. I mean, what a moment to be talking about, like, the value of self-critique, right? When you've got, (laughs) you know, someone sitting in the White House who's never acknowledged making a mistake ever. Um, (laughs) But this is fascinating to me because um, I'm so... Um, American missionaries established a lot of schools in northern Sri Lanka, where um, my family is from. And it took me a really long time to understand that my attraction to certain kinds of literature had to do in part with a kind of historic that that influence, actually. Yeah. Um, Like, essentially, um, that the effect of that kind of language, that kind of rhetoric, that kind of uh, push towards self-critique. Um, that history is, it's all over, it's all over the world. And, um, even sort of, uh, a huge amount of what I understand about, um, dissident politics in Sri Lanka, which is mostly what I write about, seems actually in interesting ways that I'm just starting to think about to, to be tracing itself back to this kind of writing. Yeah, it's fascinating because all those things obviously also were tied up with all the all the less noble uh, impulses of you know, colonialism and racism and all this sort of stuff. But there really is that there really is a through line of democracy and empowerment and and, and you know and, and and so these ideas of you know women's suffrage and abolition and coeducation and all these sorts of things you know came, came out of that. Out, out of that tradition, you know, as, as embroiled as it inevitably would be with the rest of the problems of the history of, you know, sort of Europe going out and screwing the world up, <laughs> not to put it too finely, but yeah, yeah. So in Tinkers, there are these lovely, uh, mysterious, quote unquote, you know, journal entries uh, that show up in the book that feel like religious description that's not from any particularly known religion. Um I like to imagine them as being sermons, the, the sermons that Howard Crosby's father writes in the attic but never gives to his congregation. But I don't know that that's the case. Maybe they're written by Howard himself or by George, or maybe you can tell me who they're written by. But um, whoever the author, they seem to push toward a kind of transcendental experience that's like outside the doggerel of organized religion. Is that your sort of one of your characters groping toward this kind of Transcendentalist understanding. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, those passages are interesting. I mean, from a the author's you know perspective, they were these strange passages that would come up almost as um, like contrails or after images of the sun. You know, after I would spend a week working on a scene. Uh, you know, the literal actual scene that occurred and then a day or two later it's like I would be seeing sunspots kind of like these weird vapor trails very impressionistic very lyrical um, impressionistic uh, so I just started writing them down and then I just gave them these kind of fake little Latin titles and all you know um, and I, I wanted I knew I wanted to keep them in the book and I knew somehow or another they were essential but I didn't spend much time trying to land them in a particular, you know, attribute them or whatever. But I have to tell you that I did come to think of them as um, Howard's father, the minister. Okay. Um, Yeah. I'm glad to to hear that because I was so excited when I figured that out. I thought, oh, that's got to be what it is. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of those cool things where I figured it out. And so I (laughs) just figured (laughs) if I figured it out, everybody else will figure it out. You know, that sort of, I mean, it's always lovely to just leave connections to be made by the reader. But those passages were, um, yeah. I mean, I think that's, I think that's right. They're, I think they're kind of mystical and incantatory. I think they're also very experiential, you know, in that they're impressionistic. It's just sort of um, uh, almost like, you know, I was a drummer in a formal life, former life, and 
kind of obsessed with musical improvisation. So they were, when I composed them, they were like improvisations based on the knowledge gained from writing the literal scenes. Consistent with transcendentalism, I've been reading a lot of phenomenology lately, you know, uh-huh. um, Edmund Husserl, and, and, and the idea of, so the, the, these visions, they're visions, and I describe the visions, I describe the experience of them, but there's no explanatory impulse. The visions don't explain anything. They are just valuable in and of themselves as experiences, you know. So related to that, there's a section where Howard states his view of the soul to Meg, who's his his late in life partner. And I wonder if you would read that for us. Sure, be glad to. One January night, In 1972, Howard's attention strayed from the book he was reading in bed. He imagined his own sleeping form, imagined that if one could pan back from the peaceful face to a bird's eye view, one could see the supine figure floating, not upon the vastness of a dark ocean of sleep, but reposing in the vastation itself, the soul or whatever name one cared to give it, divested of the body. So that what seemed reposing body was simply the most likely image of whatever of the whatever named soul, freed of its salt-like seawater evaporating in the sun, so that the actual body, resting in bed, sighing, mumbling, came to be more like a scurf, more like that saline column of myth, while the soul, or whatever one named it, reattached itself in some way to the actual thing of itself, like a shadow, as if when his waking self walked down the street on the way home from work, the shadow he made of man with a paper bag holding six oranges under one arm and a small bouquet of lilies beneath the other was some reduced version of himself, which, freed from its simple two dimensions, defined by an obscurity of light, a projection of dark, would be autonomous and free to move, independent of the silhouette cast by the man, and which, for all he knew, when the sun went down and the lamp was turned down, when all light, in fact, was removed from possibly coming between the body and the planes and the surfaces upon which its form might be projected by sun, lamp, or even moon, actually did He saw no reason to doubt that his shadow dreamed just as he did for the reason that he could imagine himself to be a shadow of something, (laughs) someone else, and that perhaps even his sleep, his dreams, constituted his duty as a shadow of someone else, and that perhaps while that someone else dreamed, he was free to live his waking life, so that this alternating interdependent series of lives formed a sort of intaglio, The waking day of each shadow was the opposite side of its possessor's sleep. When he tried to explain this to Megan as they lay in bed, he, with a copy of the world's book of favorite popular verse (laughs) tented on his chest, she keeping her place in the poor orphans of Tinsley Grange with a forefinger, she said, that must be why you can't sleep some nights and have those awful nightmares about those big dark houses full of all those people you know but who don't recognize you. Or that woman and her twin daughters frozen in the lake ice with all their long hair tangled up. Your shadow wants a nap, and so you have to get up so that it can sleep. Imagine that. And if your shadow wakes you up and you wake me up, 
my shadow must be taking a nap too. Maybe our shadows are in cahoots, sweet pea. Maybe they're partners in crime, just like us. Howard said, maybe, my love, maybe that is so. And he kissed Meg on the ear, closed his book, fell asleep, and died. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I really like that passage. It's such a, in a way, for me, it's a beautiful, happy ending for Howard. That's a very I, difficult you know, life. <laughs> I, that really was. I mean, just lit, you know, to give away trade secrets. I, I just figured I, the, his book, his life was so difficult that I figured his ending should he should find somebody who made him happy and he should die peacefully. <laughs> I always tell students you can't write the entire book with a clenched fist. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's exactly, you know, and Marilyn Robinson, one of my teachers, always says, why are you afraid to be nice to your characters? (laughs) (laughs) I catch myself, yeah, like sort of grinding away at them, thinking, geez, you know, let's, let's, you know, you should have some, some joy in your life. I feel like there's this tendency to, or or openness to understanding in this family, uh, the Crosbys, Um, and Tinker's Howard is deeply in love with his father despite his oddness or his difference from society and that's in part because his father's open to religious experience Um, and in Enon uh, it's about the same family of course and I wonder if you felt like the same gift of understanding or maybe it's a curse is passed down to that novel's main character Charlie Crosby yeah I mean there's a you know family resemblance they share the same DNA Uh, and I think when you get into these, you know, most prof- the most profound states, aesthetic or intellectual or mystical or religious states of just considering what it is to be a human being, you very quickly pass over the threshold where actually explanation or understanding kind of are no longer available to you. To to understand something or to explain something would essentially constitute necessarily explaining something away or re- being being reductive. Um, and so, talk about. Charlie Crosby and Enon. I, I just think you know he, this great tragedy has befallen him, and he, you know, consistent with his family and the tradition, the culture, and everything, um, uh, pays just the, the the very closest attention to his own experience as a way of um, of, of of just trying to um, um, uh, tr- trying to find some sense in it, trying to describe it for himself in a way, almost to make as I think of Tinker's is. Uh, George, the character who's dying, who's passing away over the course of the book, he's trying to make a portrait of his father. He's trying to remember his father, trying to describe, and it's sort of like portraiture, um, because that in itself, in itself, is valuable. And I think that Charlie is trying to negotiate these different versions of his of his memory of his daughter um, uh, in order to find where the value is and to try to to try to. Um, try to make some sort of coherent portrait of it, if if not necessary to understand it. Charlie Crosby loses his daughter in the opening scene of Enon. And in, I mean, I can't think of sort of a more biblical tragedy. It seems to me like the question being asked here is one that religion, I mean, exists to try to answer. Why do bad things happen? You know, the problem with evil. When my first child was born, it was the first time in my life I thought, okay, now I can actually imagine, um, um, committing suicide you know just like if anything happened to that child i would just go out into the backyard dig a hole climb in it and you know put the dirt back over my and, and then i thought well how would you not do that <laughs> um and so uh, and and so the, the the whole through line for me of enon is um i i thought of it as kind of a myth or a bible story. it was kind of like or- orpheus or persephone the idea of 
somebody about whom you care so much, who you love so much, um, uh, you lose that person and you can't imagine your own life continuing without them uh, so acutely that you you make a trip to the underworld, right. to Hades, um, to try to fetch that person back. I guess I thought of the, you know, the Job story from the Bible um, where, but this is a different, you know, in other words, Job ha- solves that problem in a Christian way, which is like, you just simply have to have faith in God. And that doesn't really work quite so much for a transcendentalist. And I thought this was like a way of, the book for me was like a way of trying to figure out how somebody from the Crosby family would work out this particular problem. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the thing about the Crosby family is that, you know, you know, Charlie, say moi, you know, <laughs> you know, he's a version of me that I sort of aesthetically put pressure on, put a version of myself into this position. And just, you know, as an author, it was a a sort of problem I set for myself. And the, the only thing I knew about Enon when I started writing it and put this character in the situation was that he, he would not die. He would not kill himself. That, um, you know, so the dramatic situation, um, you know, which is, is that, you know, there's the real threat of the loss of hope, but I knew that it wouldn't be hopeless. I didn't want the book to be hopeless, but then, you know, uh, w- where is hope then when it seems like, all is almost lost, you know, so I wanted to make the novel get darker and darker and darker, but not end in absolute darkness. And there's a line somewhere in there where he you know, talks about, you know, just even like the smallest spark of light contradicts, you know, a whole universe of darkness or whatever. So and I think that's a very, you know, that's that. I think that's a uh, that's pretty consistent with religion and with, um, you know, I think one of the one of the traditions in at least this kind of reformed Protestant um, uh, uh, thinking is that, you know, one of the first presumptions of faith is its failure. Um, yeah. You know, when St. Paul says we, you know, ours, we, we go from faith to faith, which is that faith will always fail. And where do you find it next? You know, and the, and the idea that the second you say I have faith is the moment you've lost it basically. Yeah. Well, the book is named at, at refer the name of the town, which is the name of the book, is a reference to also a biblical place where John the Baptist did his first baptisms. Is that right? Am I getting right? That right. right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So there's rebirth yeah. there in a certain sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I I, I sort of think he does it. And I, and I mean, again, this is that sort of like it's it's not giving anything away. It's not even symbolism. It's as literal as can be. I mean, the way, you know, one of the things that sort of wakes Charlie up is he ends up in cold water. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah it's, it's a baptism. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's, there's nothing sort of deep. But, I mean, it's deep, but it's not there's nothing hidden about it. It's, you know, he, he sort of resets and sort of looks at the world, is able to sort of gets enough traction to sort of look at the world in a slightly different way. And I, I think of it as he ends up doing the right thing, not because he wants to, not because it's personal, but because it's the, you know the the right thing is it's you know it contains its own value within it. So, Paul, um, sort of going off of this, could you maybe read to us from Enon? There's a there's a beautiful part towards the end where Charlie remembers the night right before his daughter died, and and that connects him to George Crosby from Tinkers. Sure, sure. The night before Kate died, I woke up from a dream about an immense house filled with relatives from a dozen generations. It was the beginning of September, and there was a heat wave, and we didn't have any air conditioners. 
Susan's in my bedroom was located at the front of the house. There were two windows in the room, one facing the side yard, which looked out into the foliage of a large beech tree, and one facing the front lawn. I had opened both windows, hoping for a cross breeze, although the air was completely still, and I had angled an oscillating fan between the stool and sash of the side window so that it would draw in air that had been cooled by the tree and push it through the room over our bed. I think I knew that the tree did not cool the air, but the idea was appealing. When I awoke, the fan had tipped back against the screen in the window and was making a sound like an animal trying to claw through the screen as it tried to rotate back and forth. I sat up and gulped at the glass of water on my bedstand. Susan did not stir. She flourished in the heat and slept deeply. My t-shirt and my hair were damp with sweat. My pillowcase was sticky from sweat on both sides, more like a sponge than a pillow, I remember thinking, groggy, grumpy. It struck me at that moment that the room in which I'd last been in the house in my dream was a vast conservatory with high vaulted ceilings made of glass and aluminum, built-in bookcases full of old leather-bound books and lots of red leather chairs and couches, like in the lobby of a grand hotel, all of which seemed to have immense potted ferns looming up behind them, shading them with green canopies of fronds. I crawled forward to the end of our bed and propped the fan back up on the windowsill and stuck my face in front of it. The currents of air broke against my damp skin and made the hair on my neck and arms prickle. Torpid, I crawled off the bed and knelt at the back window and looked out into the night. The air was perfectly still, not so much as a leaf on a tree rustled. The yard seemed timeless. And it struck me that the wind moving the trees and the grass and the clouds was what usually gave the sense that time was still moving, that the world was still moving, that the wind was a mechanism, something like a clock. Or the trees and the clouds were the clock, and the wind, the power, released from some immense solar spring uncoiling in space. I thought my grandfather might have liked the idea of a clock made of clouds and wind. Uh, thank you so much, Paul. So, um, why are there so many fundamentalists today and so few transcendentalist-loving authors like you? <laughs> I, well, I, I've thought about this, actually. You know, I, I, I mean, I think that fundamentalism is uh, an opportunistic phenomenon. Um, you know, I, I, I think that it's a kind of simplistic, reductive way of thinking about whatever subject you apply your, to which you apply your attention, you know, so there are, you know, religion can be thought of in a beautiful, transcendental, aesthetic, sophisticated way, and it can be thought of in an overly literal, reductive, fundamentalist way, the same way, by the way, that science can be thought of, you know, when people say, oh, I believe in science over religion, and, you know, um, uh, people basically just take science and turn it into this weird monolithic category and um, act like, act as fundamentalistic about science as other people do about religion. So I think it's a human, it's a it's a it's a it's a common human peril to be fundamentalistic. We need to set up some transcendentalist reading rooms, like the old Christian Science reading rooms or something. Right. Some copies <laughs> I think of that. Margaret that would be great. Fuller, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I you know, and I, I mean, I also think too that I mean, you know, transcendentalism is a much safer word to use now because I think in in this idea, uh, you know, people equate religion with you know, being very simplistic and being superstitious and it makes you stupid and we're all past myth and, you know, very materialistic kind of thinking. And so people are just even embarrassed to to look into it. Um, I mean, in my opinion, I think that is just a, 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 a particular stripe of the, you know, classic old kind of elite, elitist, classist, racist, you know, type of thinking. Um, uh, you know, this idea that metaphysics is sort of navel gazing or romantic or intellectually flabby or something. Um, I mean, it's a temptation. I mean, I think people want, you know, like the idea are attempted by the idea of, I'll figure out what the answers are. I'll understand it. And then I can just sort of, you know, um, go on from there. I don't know what they go on, but they think they're going to go on too. But, um, it, it, you know, it, it, yeah, this idea of just like closing the world down and becoming just this sort of intractable, ossified kind of, um, you know, uh, soul or, or intellect is, is it's common, but it's something that it's sort of particularly we as authors, you know, who, you know, sort of trade and truth and beauty need to, you know, try to counteract every day. And on that note, Paul, we're going to thank you very much for coming to talk to us. Oh, thank you. It was a great, great pleasure. I, I, I wish we could go on forever. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. But yeah, thanks so much for your time, Paul. We really appreciate it. What a treat for our listeners. Oh, well, likewise. It's wonderful, wonderful questions. I, th these are the kind of conversations I've like, now we've just scratched some surfaces, so let's really start talking now. Well, you'll come back <laughs> yeah. and we'll do that. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. Credit for the music bed and our great Courses Plus promo goes to Damien, Josiah, Johansson, and Anthony Bell. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the news tab. Sugi and I have great faith that you are going to do the things we need you to do to help us out. Namely, try the Great Courses Plus and give us a rating on iTunes. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week there. Uh, on LitHub, on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and check us out on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. Happy reading.